Our mission at, at Crosspoint, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We're going to continue our series. We started the series last week. We've been calling this Money Matters. So if you would open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 8, we'll be in verses 1 through 15 this morning, a sermon I'm calling Generous Giving. So like I said, we're going to be continuing our series that we've been calling Money Matters. And the reason why is because what we say about the money that God gives us really says everything about who we are. Because when you consider that we call ourselves believers, what we say about money is really important. The Apostle Paul, he, he founded the church in Corinth. And he's writing them to remember the importance of being generous with the money that, that God gives them. Since God was generous with his grace, a believer should be generous with every single aspect of their, their life, including their checkbooks. I mean, think, think about this. The church at Corinth, they're, they're new member, new, new believers, excuse me. They hadn't known Christ very long, and the church had lots of problems. The church was rampant with sin, and Paul wrote his first letter to them to get them back on, on, on track. And then God blesses the church and, and because they listen to Paul. And now Paul's writing the church again as he, as he pins 2 Corinthians. And the church is trying to raise money uh, to take up an offering first to these other believers. The, the church in Corinth made this promise to take up a special offering. And we're going to find out in the reading of this that the members of the church made this promise to help others, but then they failed to keep their promise. Okay, And so Paul writes them to teach them the importance of a very important aspect um, by talking about a, the church in Macedonia. The church in Macedonia was an exemplary church in every single way, especially when it came to their generosity. The church in Macedonia is mentioned four times in the, the New Testament. Every time it's mentioned as an exemplary church. So this is what I think we need to do. We need to put our, our, our feet in the shoes of the, the church at Corinth and learn as they're learning about what it takes to be a generous church. With that, let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. Here, here's my first point for us this morning. Point number one. Generous giving reveals the grace of God. Paul uses the word grace, and in the Greek, it's charis, okay? The word charis in the Greek, it means unmerited favor, because the grace of God is something that you don't deserve. The grace of God is something that you can never earn, and why you can't earn it is because it's not performance-based. The word grace appears 156 times in our New Testament, 100 times by the Apostle Paul alone. And then here in the word grace in, in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, it's, it's mentioned a total of eight times. And why that's really profound is because chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians is all about, all about being generous with your, with your giving. I think that's very interesting. But the grace, this grace is referring to a financial uh, grace. And, and since God has been... Uh, financially generous uh, to provide for his, his people, the Macedonians, they experienced the grace of God, and that led them to an outpouring of their generosity. But here's something that we need to recognize as, as believers, that if God has changed your life, if you have tasted the grace of God, then it changes every aspect of your life. 
Because there's no way that you can experience the grace of God and somehow would not radically change you in ways that are undeniable. One of the very first barometers that you, if you've experienced the grace of God, is that it will lead you to have a desire to meet the needs of others. Continue, continue reading, look in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. The word of God says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have been overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Here's my second point for us this morning. Point number two, generous giving is not determined by external circumstances. Because the church in Macedonia, it was said, was they have severe affliction. They, affliction. they had extreme poverty. They, they, but think about it. They could have whined. They could have complained. They could have grumbled about everything that's going on in their life, but they didn't. How did they respond? They responded with an abundant joy and overflowing in their generosity. And that's a really radical way of approaching life when you consider what the church of Macedonia was experiencing. Because they were afflicted, yet they were happy. They were poverty-stricken, yet they were giving to others. So a question that we ask ourselves sometimes is, how can you experience joy when you're suffering? Well, according to verse 1 that we just read, joy is produced by the grace of God. And God's grace in our heart, it produces a deep, abiding joy that overflows in a wealth of generosity. But studies show that, uh, the, 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 that the, the more people have, typically the less they have, they, they give, excuse me. The more they, we have, the less we give as far as a percentage would go. But the believers in Macedonia are actually the opposite of this. They were poor, and yet they're giving much. The whole church has experienced severe affliction and extreme poverty, and yet they're a church that's giving generously. Let me ask you, are you experiencing what the church of Macedonia was experiencing? Are you experiencing severe affliction and extreme poverty? The chances are probably not just because of the country we live in. We have so much. We are extremely rich if you compare um, our wealth to most any country in the world. I read a statistic said that if you own your own home, if you have two cars, and if you have any type of savings whatsoever, you're in the top 2% of the world's richest people. Kind of crazy when, when you think about it, that, that just that, and you're in the top 2% earners in the world. You know, most Christian, uh, Americans, even though they claim, may some claim to be relatively poor, would still be in the top 10% of the world's richest people. And if you think you're poor, I'd encourage you to come on a uh, mission trip with us to some other parts of the world, and you'll get to see what real poverty looks like. Yet, when it came to the Macedonians, their circumstances didn't stop them from giving. But we often don't. Often we allow our external circumstances to affect what, what we give. Why? Because we don't make giving a priority in our life. It all comes down to the dreaded B word, that budget. If we don't budget our giving, then typically we won't. What will end up happening is we'll spend all of our money on ourselves. There, there's two types of people in this world. There's, there's nerds and there's free spirits. I don't say that derogatory, and the world needs all, both types of people, but the nerds are the organized people, the planners, the, they, they love spreadsheets, and typically they're the ones that track every single penny that goes in or out, and the free spirits, they don't want to track anything. 
They just want to spend it as, as it comes in. And it's weird how God puts those two individuals in the confines of a marriage to be like spiritual sandpaper on each other, to, to, to refine each other in this process we call sanctification. But how you spend your money is really a reflection on what's important to you. How you spend your money, it reflects your values, it reflects your convictions, and it's a good indication of your spiritual health. Because Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let me ask you, what does your budget look like? What are you spending your treasures on? When you think about it, we budget for our house. We budget for our cars, our, our food, our clothing, our, our hobbies, our vacations. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. We absolutely should budget for those things. But let me ask you, are you budgeting for your giving? We need to make budgeting or budgeting our giving a priority because really that's a reflection on where our heart is at. And I want to ask, does your heart belong to Jesus? Continue reading. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. The word of God says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Point number three, generous giving is sacrificial. The church in Macedonia gave beyond their means, of their own accord. They gave generously above and beyond their their ability. They didn't just give the extra money they had laying in the cushions of the couch because they didn't have any extra money. I mean, they they, they took risk and they gave sacrificially so they, they they could give. I heard a story of a little girl that was in a church service, much like this one. And the preacher was, was preaching a sermon on giving, just like the one that you're, you're giving. And the, at the end of the service, the pastor called for the ushers to come forward, take the offering. As the, as the plate was going by, he saw the little girl remove a ring that she had on. It was a very special ring. It was given to her mom, and she placed it in the plate. And, and the pastor felt a little embarrassed because he just preached on giving. And this little girl responded as such. And so after the service, he went and he got the little girl and said, hold on here. Wait here, I'm going to go get the ushers to, to go get your ring and give that ring back to you. And that little girl looked at her pastor and said, no, you will not. She said, I didn't give you that ring. I gave that ring to God. You see, I think that little girl understood something about the principle of sacrificial giving. Because when we give sacrificially, we're giving something that we typically want to God because we want to give to something that God wants. Heard another story of uh, something happened in medieval Europe of a, of a beggar. He approached a king and he, he asked the king to give him something. And the king looked into the, the beggar's eyes and said, you give something to me first. And the beggar reached into his pocket and pulled out a, pulled out a few kernels of corn and, and grabbed one piece of corn and, and gave it to the king. The king took the corn and then he reached into his pocket and pulled out a few nuggets of gold and he grabbed one nugget of gold, gold equal to the size of the, the kernel of corn he gave and gave it to the, the beggar. And for the rest of that beggar's life, he lived in sorrow because he didn't respond in a sacrificial way to the king's request. Many of us give like that. We give what we think that we'll never miss. We give what we, we think that we're never going to miss it once it's gone. But here's something I want you to know. God owns everything. Everything that you have, it really belongs to God. Read in Psalms 24, verse 1. The Word of God says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Read in Psalms chapter 50, verse 10. The Word of God says, For every beast of the forest is mine, 
the cattle on a thousand hills. For I know the birds of the hills and, and all that moves in the fields is mine. If I were hungry, I would, not, would I not tell you? For the world and its fullness is mine. So everything belongs to God. All of our material possessions, they're not really ours. They're just on loan to us from God. We are just simply stewards of everything God gives us because they're all his possessions. We are managers of what is, what is God's. And so he has ownership rights. We don't because everything we have is a gift from God. During the crusades of the 12th century, the crusaders, they hired mercenaries to fight for them. Because it was a religious war, the crusaders decided to baptize the mercenaries before they went into battle. But as they were being baptized, what they would do is they would hold their swords out of the water. What was symbolizing, they're saying, I belong to Jesus, but not my sword, so that I could do whatever I want with my sword. And ironically, that's how some people handle their checkbooks. They say, Jesus, every aspect of my life is yours except this one. This one aspect I'm not giving over to you because I'm perfectly capable of handling that myself. But when we realize that it's all God's money, it's not ours, it really frees us up to give and to share. So the question we should ask ourselves is not how much of our money should we give to God, it's how much of God's money should we hold back to keep for ourselves. Last thing I want to note about verse 3, Paul says they gave of their own accord. That means they weren't pressured. They, they weren't coerced. And they, gave, they gave willingly. They gave out a deep poverty. But that should tell us that a church should never pressure uh, its congregation to give. This is what I'm asking you to do as your pastor. Pray about it. And then just give as the Lord leads you. Continue reading. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 4. The Word of God says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Point number four, generous giving is done with enthusiasm. The Macedonian church, they were begging to give. They, they're, they're begging to give for Paul's offering. And I have to wonder, maybe Paul tried to stop them from giving because he knew how poor they were. But yet the Macedonians were enthusiastic. They were passionate about giving to God so that the needs of others could be met. And the Macedonian believers, they were selfless. But you know what happens is in our, our human sinfulness, we really want to take care of ourselves first. Grace giving is about meeting the needs of others. But, but verse 4 tells us that, 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 that they were begging to give, even though they were poor. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you begged to give? I've been practicing tithing my entire Christian life, and I can't think of one time that I begged to give like the Macedonians did. You see, I think what's happening is that the Macedonians were begging to give because they were excited to get on to what God did. What God was doing. They wanted to get in on, on God's work. And that's really where the change occurs. Where you give not to get, but you give so that you can get on what God's doing. I heard a um, story that Pastor Chuck Swindoll told. He told about a church board that was, they were very concerned because they thought the church congregation, it felt a little awkward when the offering time came. 
And so the, the, they thought, hey, we need to devise a new system for giving that would make the church congregation not so feel so awkward. So they, they charged the church pastor to come up with this uh, idea. And so the church pastor thought, and he came up with this idea, that he was going to put boxes at the, at the exits that you could drop something in as you left. But this, these boxes worked a little different. If you dropped a dollar or more in, nothing happened. If you dropped a half dollar in, a little bell went off. If you gave a quarter, a whistle would blow. If you gave a dime, a siren went off. If you gave a nickel, a, a, a gunshot would go off. And if you gave nothing, your picture was taken. Pa- Pastor Chuck told the story. I didn't tell the story. It's his story. But that would make the offer time really awkward. Kids beg at Christmas time, don't they? They're always begging. They always have this long list of stuff they want. They want this, that, and the other thing. And we always told our kids, we'll put it on the list. It wasn't until recently they finally figured out that there is no running list of everything the kids want. It's just something mom and dad are, are keeping in their heads. But this type of begging, when you're begging, it's a, we always beg to get. We don't beg to give, but that's not what the Macedonians were doing. They were begging that they could be able to give. Read in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. It says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus and how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Did you know that it is more blessed to give than to receive? And if anything's taught me as I get older, and that's definitely true at Christmas time, because I have more joy today watching my kids get what they get rather than, than I ever did when I get anything. Jump over to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. The Word of God says, Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. He proves of a, of some, who, who gives of, out, out of joy. He wants us to give not out of obligation, but from a cheerful heart. You know, think about this. What if your, your spouse or your children only gave you affection out of obligation? Wives, what if, you're, if, you, if your husband only gave you romance and affection, affection because he had to? What if your husband actually said that? Said, well, if I had to. That would ruin it, wouldn't it? Husbands, what if your wife was going to be passionate with you but just said, okay, if I have to? How would that make you feel? Make you feel terrible. I want you to know that, that your attitude has the potential to ruin the act. So we don't give out of duty. We give because it's a privilege. We give so that we can get in on what God is doing. So when we come to church on Sunday, we often refer to that as, as we're coming to a worship service. But what I want you to know is every aspect of what happens here, it's all an act of worship. We often think of the singing as the act of worship, and I say that sometimes. Didn't you enjoy that worship? But that's still true. That is an act of worship. But the reading of God's Word, that's an act of worship. The preaching and the listening to the sermon, that is an act of, of worship. And the giving that we typically do at the end of service, that's an act of worship as well. Have you ever thought of giving as an act of worship? Because it is. We are worshiping a God. We are giving something uh, so we can get in on what God is doing. Keep reading, look in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The word says, Accordingly, we urge Titus, that as he had started, that he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. 
I say this not as a commandment, but to prove by the earnestness to, of others that your love also is genuine. Here's point number five for this morning. Generous giving is a spiritual priority. Did you see what Paul is doing here? He's urging the the church in Corinth to give, to excel in this act of grace in this matter of generously giving. In fact, Paul puts giving on the same level as faith or speech or, or knowledge. All Christians should be generous givers. All of us should give. Let's just be honest. Some people are just better at it than others. Some people have the spiritual gift of giving is what the Bible says. Have you ever known anybody that, that, that has that gift? They're always looking to meet the needs of others. Some people are more naturally inclined towards generosity and giving because what happens is they see somebody in need and they take the lead. It, that's when they are always looking for others, how they can meet the needs of someone else. But giving doesn't naturally always come easy. Heard a story uh, happened in the Deep South about a, in a church and there's a pastor that's preaching like I am here and he's heading towards the end of the conclusion of his sermon. He really wanted ended on a crescendo just before the offering was taken. And so the, the, the pastor said, this church, like a crippled man, has got to get up and walk. And the church congregation said, let it, let it walk, preacher, let it walk. And then he, he continued on. He, he said, this, this church, like Elijah on Mount Carmel, it's got to run. And the church congregation said, let it run, preacher, let it run. And the preacher said, this church has got to mount up on eagle's wing and it's got to fly. And the church congregation said, let it fly, preacher, let it fly. And the pastor said, if we're going to fly, it's going to take money. And the church said, let it walk, preacher, let it walk. I like that one too, that's funny. (laughs) But there's two kinds of people in this world. There's takers and there's givers. Takers don't see other people's needs because they're more concerned with their own needs. Givers are the people that are looking for opportunity that they can bless someone else. Keep reading, look in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. It says, for, by, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Point number six, generous giving reminds us of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought of your giving actually pointed you to Jesus? Because Jesus was rich. Can we all agree that Jesus was rich? He's the God man, he was in heaven eternally. He was rich and yet he became poor for, for our sake so that we could be rich through him, spiritually speaking. I mean, think about how, just how rich he was. I mean, he's in heaven. He, he has no deficiencies in God. He has no needs, no wants. He has everything. And he enjoyed this intimate fellowship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. All the angels of heaven are worshiping him, and yet he became poor. Jesus chose to become poor. He left the riches of heaven and stepped into humanity. He was born into poverty to a teenage girl and a working-class construction worker for an adopted father. He was laid in a manger. It was in a cave or a grotto. It was, that's where the animals went. And he humbled himself by becoming a man and taking on flesh and then grew up in a small podunk town of Nazareth. It wasn't a prominent place to live. He, he grows up having brothers and sisters and spends the first 30 years of his life as a 
blue-collar, in a blue-collared working job. Most Bible translations say he was a carpenter, but the word is tecton. It, it really means anybody that works with their hands. And so if you've ever been to Israel, there's very little wood. There's a lot of rocks, though. So he's more like a stonemason. Think of a bricklayer by today's standards. And then he went into ministry. He didn't, he didn't, have, a, he didn't have a home. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He, he had to eat and stay at the, at the homes of friends because he didn't have a place. He starts with a small band of followers, 12 and all, but soon the crowds and the multitudes began to follow, and yet he died on a cross to pay for our debt. Three days later, he rose from the grave conquering Satan and sin and death, and now he offers a generous relationship with the Father. It's called eternal life. Jesus became poor at the incarnation and ultimately at his death, and through his death and his resurrection, we can be made right with God. We can be rich spiritually only because Jesus is generous. So believers can learn to model generosity of Jesus by giving. And Jesus is the greatest, most generous giver the world has ever seen. Keep reading, look in verse 10. It says, In this matter, I give you my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also a desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desire, it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So point number seven for us this morning, generosity is measured proportionally. In order to give generously, that means you have to give out of what you have, not out of what you don't have. So a Christian's giving is to be proportionate. Uh, we are to, to give uh, a tithe is what the Bible says. That raised a question. That means, that means what, what, how much are we to give? Well, the word tithe literally means 10%. In the book of Proverbs, it says uh, that, that we're to give God our first fruits. You know, right off the top, read in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. So then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And I want to add on, we need to do this on the first day of the week. And if you pulled out your calendars, you looked on your calendars, you would see that Sunday, that day of worship, is that first day. That, that is the, the express day that we have set aside as New Testament believers for the, for the worship of God. And in the Old Testament, a believer is required to give way more than 10%. Really, the 10% is where it all began, and it started to go up from there. Farmers were instructed to not uh, get the gleanings of their, their farmland. They were to leave it for orphans and widows and the poor and then there was more money that was raised for the Levitical priesthood. And there was money that was taken and for additional feasts and festivals and for the seventh year celebration. Theologians say that the Old Testament believer was, was required to give anywhere from 24 to 27% of their gross income. And as New Testament believers, we're just asked to give 10. I think it's a pretty good deal to me. Some people say that, that tithing is under the law of the Old Testament. It's actually not true. The tithe, it predates the law. The, the, the law was given by Moses, but 420 years before this, there we could see tithing when Abraham gives a tithe to a priest named Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. 
And then some people say, well, the, the, the tithe is Old Testament. We don't see it anywhere in the New Testament. Not true. But Jesus had a lot to say to the Pharisees, most of which was negative. But did you know Jesus gave one compliment to the Pharisees? The only compliment he gave to the Pharisee was the way they tithed. Read in Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of law and justice and mercy and faithfulness. These things you ought to have done, but you neglected the others. Jesus said these things you ought to have done, meaning good for you. You got the tithe right, but you missed the more important things. Tithing, it's a matter of the heart, not a matter of the wallet. Because when people don't tithe, it's not a matter of the heart or the wallet. It's what's going on in their heart. I read a study that was said in 1933 at the height of the Great Depression. The average evangelical church member gave 3.3%. Think about it. That's when the time in our nation was when it's poorest. Fast forward to the year 2000, the average evangelical church member gave 2.6%. That statistic is 22 years old. I have to think we've only gone worse from there. There's a man by the name of Christian Smith. He wrote a book called Passing the Plate. He claims, he says, one out of four American Protestants give nothing. Nationally speaking, one out of four Christians give nothing. People that do this, they often play what I like to call, let's make a deal with God. Does anybody remember the old show, Let's Make a Deal with Monty Hall? I know some young, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But let me go ahead and tell you how the show went, if you're too young to remember that. Contestants were put on stage, and they're put on camera, and you got to make a deal with the host. And you got to choose this window or that window. And sometimes if you didn't like what you got, you can make a deal. And sometimes you got a new car, and sometimes you got a goat. But God doesn't want to make a deal. God wants your heart. Or if somebody's not playing, let's make a deal with God. Instead, they're, they're viewing God as a cosmic pinata, and they think the tithe is the stick. And they, they only tithe to get what they want out of God. So they, they think, the harder I hit, hit God, the more he has to give me. But with that reasoning, the reason you're giving is to get, and that's a terrible reason to give. If that's your reason for giving, then please don't give anything at all. That's what those who, who follow the prosperity gospel teach. That's the health, wealth gospel. That you give only so that you can give. You, you give only so that you can get. The problem with that is it doesn't line up with God's word. I believe in generosity theology. That's where we're generous because it reveals the very work of God. We give so that God's grace can be seen by others. But let me tell you, God's grace is so much more valuable and precious than anything any amount of money. Keep reading. Look in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says, For I do not mean that others should be at ease and you burden, but that is the matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your needs. But there will be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathers much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Here's my eighth and final point for us this morning. Generous giving allows us to meet the needs of others. 
Paul is talking about equality here. He's talking about fairness here. He didn't want the Corinthians to live in the lap of luxuries while others were, were, were suffering and vice versa. He didn't want somebody to suffer while others are living comfortably. The point is that God wants you to use the resources he gives you to meet the needs of others. Why? So that you can help somebody else. God wants you to be the vehicle that he reaches the others. Remember, we live in one of the richest countries in the world. And the only reason you live here is because God is sovereign. And he's chose you to live here. He could have had you live anywhere on this, this planet. But here's the bottom line. People matter to God. People are made in the image of God. So people matter to him. And all people have equal dignity and value and worth regardless of their gender or age or race or where they're born. So since people matter to God, people should matter to us. We need to strive to help those who are struggling. We've been entrusted with much, so we should give those who are in need. In verse 9, Paul said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to ask you this. Do you know the grace of God? Do you know his grace? Have you tasted the grace of God? Paul explained the the grace of God like this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. He said, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How is anybody saved? By the grace of God. We don't deserve it. We can never earn it. But yet he gives it to us. How? Through faith. You have to recognize your sinfulness. Turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. And you will be saved. I love that word saved. Because it carries the connotation of danger. We often say that in Christianity, you need to make a decision for Christ. You need to give your life for Christ. And that's true, you do. But the word saved means that you're in danger. Danger for what? The very wrath of God. In Romans, Paul said, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you've never called on Jesus to save you, I'd ask you to do that now. To recognize your sin, turn and turn to him in faith. Say, God, I'm a sinner. But you love me so much, you died in my place. Save me from my sins. I give you my life. And I say this name of Jesus Christ. Amen.